You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, this is Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, where we examine all of our cultural assumptions, like that Snoop Dogg is chiefly famous as a chef, the creator of the best-ever Dijon salmon in his masterpiece, From Crook to Cook, Platinum Recipes from the Boss Dog's Kitchen, when it turns out he's a good performer, too. Did you watch the Super Bowl? I watched the game out of one distracted eye. And then, like many of us, I zeroed in like a freakish hawk on the halftime show. And of course, those QR codes from Coinbase. That thing was cool. And if you don't know what I'm talking about or you hate crypto people because they're in a Ponzi scheme, just ignore me. And it felt like a thrill went through the entire nation as the old home week parade came up. Mary J. Blige, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, I was shouting with glee over these heartthrobs when I suddenly realized that the thrill must have sounded to my kids, to all our kids, like the old days when the adults would cry out, is that Dean Martin? That is Dean Martin! You guys, Eminem is about to turn 50. So aside from the sunrise-sunset cycle of pop life, what is preoccupying me is the apocalypse, and specifically our topic today, which is a matter of virtual obsession with me, the red-pilling of yoga world. And I can't be alone. You know, we've all got a friend of a friend of a friend with a niece who went from suspicion of gluten to suspicion of GMOs and BPAs to suspicion of neoliberals and big pharma to suspicion of the deep state and then Tom Hanks and George Soros and also, oh, modernity and democracy. And finally, suspicion of Joe Biden's victory. Gulp. If you took one look at the January 6th footage, I just know you couldn't take your eyes off Jake and Jelly, the impressively built QAnon shaman, Yellowstone wolf, a ceramicist and one-time Navy hopeful who refused in 2005, he was early, to take the anthrax vaccine. And at the insurrection, he wore antlers and pelts. While jailed, awaiting trial for crimes related to trying to violently overthrow the government, the Q shaman requested, well, what do you think? No, not a long call to his nut job right-wing lawyer, but organic food. He said he'd starve himself rather than eat that shit with hormones and pesticides. He wanted clean, locally sourced, whatever, and he got it. And at the same time, this guy is 1,000% for Donald Trump. He asked in the Capitol for regular lawmakers doing their job, what he called traitors, of course, to be smoked. 
and he prayed for the glory of QAnon. Thank you for allowing the United States to be reborn, he said. We love you, and we thank you. In Christ's holy name, we pray. Oh, Yellowstone Wolf. You've even got Christ in there with the grass-fed, free-range, farm-fresh, organic madness. I mean, how did life come to this? So you've got to have wondered, even fleetingly, about the twisted path of Western seekers who start appropriating, I mean exploring, Eastern and indigenous traditions, and then decide that everything from science to rationality to civilization is not for them. And then they corner themselves with some especially sinister beliefs in the divinity of Donald Trump, say, or the righteousness of some far, far, far right views. We're going to get to the bottom of this mystery today, and I've got the perfect guest to help me. His name is Matthew Remsky. He's the host of the riveting podcast, Conspirituality, on all these themes. He's a former yoga teacher, former cult member, and author of the book, Practice and All is Coming, Abuse, Cult Dynamics, and Healing in Yoga and Beyond. Matthew Remsky, welcome to This is Critical. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor, Virginia. As you may um, have seen, I'm a little too excited about talking to you, and I've been thinking I need to do some excitement, cool-off asana before <laughs> before we talk, because we have so much to discuss. Um, well, if you have bolsters handy, um, a strap, maybe a couple of blocks, <laughs> essential oils are good in the diffuser. Maybe Maybe that would be good for the listeners, too. Matthew does a fantastic job chronicling this incredibly weird situation where yoga, which many of us still believe are a set of stretches that people do to kind of chill out, or believe are a kind of just a gym sport, also brought with it an ideology, and that ideology tilted right, and in some cases, hard right. Is that pretty much the arc of things put simply Matt. Yeah, I would agree. And I'm glad that we're starting at the beginning. Uh, because I and I don't think it's it's too nerdy to start this way with a with a big panoramic picture. Uh, I think it's good to lay out the fact that modern yoga and wellness cultures are really the de facto religions of neoliberalism. And what I mean by that is that they are ways of uh, apologizing for uh, ritualizing and spiritualizing the values that basically tear human societies apart. Mm -hmm. So first we have, you know, a focus on hyper-individualism. Uh, there's a focus on the deregulation of sort of institutional credentials. Like you don't really have to have any kind of academic training to become a yoga expert. This is all the context is is the globalization that allows for spiritual tourism all over the world. Mm. And the culture expresses a boredom with politics and with policy. Uh, it really focuses on the heroism of personal effort. and And all of this is kind of embedded in this exculpatory belief that everyone has access to everything because the end of history has leveled all playing fields. Mm. And all that's left for us to do, is to self-actualize, and yoga is really good for that. Hmm. So, yeah, that means that the basic political economy of yoga offers very little resistance towards uh, a rightward 
even libertarian, sometimes even alt-right turn. Before we even we dig in even deeper, can you give us a sort of 60-second history of yoga? I don't think this is as impossible as it sounds, and I, I bet you can pull it off. So try for the minute history of yoga. Well, the, the minute begins with the dividing line of modernity and whatever we would call pre-modern, which I think we can put at about 1893 when yoga goes global. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a couple of speeches given by a guy named Swami Vivekananda in Chicago at the World Parliament of Religions. Before that, yoga is an incredibly diverse, very rich, often internally competitive set of philosophies and, you know, orientations towards healthcare and religious rituality that is just sort of scattered and you know, richly bubbles throughout all of what is now known as India and then other parts of South Asia. After it globalizes, it becomes very firmly associated with aspects of the modernization of health, and that happens through physical culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what we now know as modern yoga is really the sort of echo of a kind of European influence upon Indian modernization within physical culture, mm. whereby yoga becomes this this way of, for, for burgeoning Hindu nationalists to begin to use physical exercise and notions about bodily strength and purification to really embolden and repair the body politic mm. of, you know, colonization. So, I don't know if that's 60 seconds, but I mean, you know, if you asked a yoga teacher that, I I used to be a yoga teacher, they would say, well, 5,000 years ago, you know, we have the Vedas and, and, or 3,500 years ago. And then they would give you a number of philosophies, uh, that would line up. But I think really Mm. the, the, the focal point for our purposes has got to be that yoga undergoes a modernization period in which it's reconstructed from a bunch of very old texts and ideas and indigenous practices, and it becomes a force of modernization rooted in physical culture, which is all about how do cultures and nation states really view themselves through their bodies. This is extraordinary, and I hope people are picking up on this is a a sociological description, in some ways an economic description, a description that um, touches on colonialism and post-colonialism in, a, in an account of yoga, where yoga, when practiced, when I've practiced it, defines itself against explanations like this. So Absolutely it does, yeah. yeah so yeah, you're reminding us that market capitalism and kind of recentering some kind of political and social um, elements of yoga as determining it, as opposed to this is a moment where you opt out of political and social constraints um, when you're sitting in uh, in lotus position. You're meant right. to be connected to the root of the earth or the beginning of time or some, um, yeah, some metaphysical reality, but you're making a point that this is physical and social reality that yoga exists into and power relations yeah, absolutely. And uh, to the extent that uh, the modern yoga revival that started to erupt in the 1920s and 30s in various places in India uh, was expressly about indigenizing a kind of physical culture imported from Europe in order to express a kind of soft political power. Hmm. And that's why it's very confusing for boomers to sort of reflect back on the fact that what they thought they were inheriting as this kind of, uh, 
you know, Eastern or Orientalized hippie lens upon the world uh, doesn't actually come from there. Um, when Swami uh, Satchidananda opens the Woodstock Festival mm. with with a booming chant of Om, I think everybody sitting on that hill in that field believes that he's expressing some kind of new liberatory universalism that, you know, will encompass and include all diverse opinions mm-hmm. and will bring everybody together and so on. And that's not where Satchidananda came from. Hmm. Where he came from was uh, a culture of Hindu nationalism associated with the Divine Life Society of Swami uh, Shivananda. Uh, and their project was not about... um diversity. It wasn't about mm. uh, progressive politics. It was about modern reforms, but it was also very much about orderliness. It was very much about discipline. It was very much about uh, how to glorify the new and emerging Hindu nationalist state. So you host the Conspirituality Podcast, which is one of my favorites, because it dives into the convergence of wellness and right-wing conspiracies. And I listened to one of your episodes with political commentator uh, Benjamin Teitelbaum about his book, War for Eternity, which was an extremely kind of rigorous episode. Let me see if I have this right. In it, Teitelbaum unpacks the crazy story of how that right-wing avatar Steve Bannon was introduced to kind of Hindu-flavored principles as a young man. And that is a little bit mind-blowing. So Hinduism, I don't know what I thought it was shorthand for in the U.S. in converts, but I certainly didn't think that it brought with it all this caste baggage that would ever lead somewhere like Bannonism. But this is, I think, the point you're making about Hinduism and its kind of unwitting import into the U.S. as a form of hippie self-expression assumed to have progressive egalitarian politics behind it. Right. I mean, what blew my mind about Teitelbaum's description uh, and his research, I think he had like 40 hours of interviews with Steve Bannon, uh, which is kind of extraordinary. But his description of Bannon's awakening while on shore leave in uh, a metaphysical bookstore in Hong Kong, and he's realizing exactly what his uh, contemporaries on the left are kind of ignoring when they're sitting in their metaphysical bookstores in Ojai, California. Mm-hmm. What he's realizing is that, uh, oh, these worldviews are built around ideas of power and order, not peace and love. Mm. And I want to learn about them. And And by doing that, he really remembers an early modern European take on yoga culture that was very inspiring to, you know, no less than the Third Reich. The the Nazis loved yoga mm-hmm. because not only did they, you know, sort of locate their Aryan history within that whole matrix, but also they were very interested in kind of like a post-Christian esotericism that would allow them to create powerful bodies for world domination. And I think, you know, before we get to galaxy brain about it, I think that it's really the bodily ideas that unconsciously filter through to the present day uh, such that, you know, when people who are kind of zoned out in neoliberal consumerism, they've been depoliticized, when they sort of turn to self-actualization through yoga, they end up drawing on 
usually without knowing it, some pretty gnarly stuff mm-hmm. because the the legacy content of 20th century yoga is inextricable from straight up fascist ideas about the body, which these burgeoning nation states all nurtured through physical culture in order to, you know, strengthen the sort of mythic and, and body politics. So the body should stand up straight. It should be pure. It should be invulnerable. It should be sexually vital, but also super heterosexual mm. so that uh, divine babies can be conceived. Mm. Uh, and it should be inseparable from the homeland. It should do organic farming. And its strength should symbolize and validate a kind of cultural and national ethos. So these are all keynotes of body fascism. Uh, they don't really intersect with pre-modern yoga culture. So 19th century yoga culture that these things aren't really there. It's really the colonial sort of crash that generates a lot of these ideas. But once they're there, they accelerate and intensify as anti-colonial proto-Hindu nationalists begin to adopt body fascism ideals in order to rejuvenate the nation or to envision a new nation. And this kicks into high gear in the 1930s. Uh, and yeah, we're living now with a legacy of yoga as physical culture that is a lot less about the internal contemplation that we would sort of inherit from the pre-modern period than it is about bodily mastery and bodily domination. So none of this should mean that if you've ever done yoga, you're a fascist and a QAnon person, right? I mean, the origins of these practices and beliefs can be very subtle, and there got to be ways of getting into Downward Dog without getting into bed with Steve Bannon. I mean, what do you think about that? Uh, there will be casual consumers of yoga who don't get any sense whatsoever that underneath the regimented postures of Ashtanga yoga, there's actually a very authoritarian politics at play that's about sculpting the body into being the perfect vessel for not only the soul, but also the uh, soul of modern India. Like, you might not, you just might not run into that. You wouldn't run into that unless you stayed for longer, uh, unless you heard it slip from the mouths of, of older teachers. Uh, And so, yeah, there's going to be a lot of people who have sort of a casual relationship with yoga and wellness who have no idea that uh, these are its political or historical roots. But the thing is, is that the more you get into it, the closer you get to that veil dropping away. Mm -hmm. So what have you decided to do for exercise? I mean, I'll tell you, I've just decided I don't want to do any of it. Sometimes I go on walks, but in general, I stay away from any kind of physical practice that implies anything spiritual or claims anything about the universe. But I wonder if you still do yoga. Yeah, so um, it's pretty broken for me in the sense that I can't get onto a mat and not know all of this history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't. I can't do a sun salutation without you know knowing that it's connected to a history of militarism and, and mm-hmm. you know nationalist exercise. Uh, so that's just sort of um, that's gone in my life. So yoga is not the peaceful exercise set of stretches that we assumed it was, but it's not only wellness culture that left Matthew Remsky with doubts. Coming up after the break, we hear about his personal experience with two cults. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. 
like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today I'm talking with Matthew Remsky, author of Practice and All is Coming, about the red-pilling of Yoga World. So... Moving away from yoga's historical origins, I'd like to hear about your own personal path to yoga. I know for you, it started not directly in yoga classes, but instead in sort of meditation and spirituality spaces as a member of a cult. So how'd you get involved in not one, but two organizations that you now consider cultish and cult-like? And how did these experiences lead you to your later stint as a yoga instructor? Yeah, I mean, um, how did I get involved? Yes, well, so two organizations. So from 96 to 99, I was uh, a member of the cult of a guy named Michael Roach. And then from 2000 to 2003, I was in a group called Endeavor Academy in Wisconsin. So how did I get involved? Well, I believe that I suffered from uh, undiagnosed depression at the time at which I first met Michael Roach. And he walked into my small town in Vermont, uh, and he walked into Montpelier and he gave a talk uh, that was electrifying to my depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it used very you know specific and earnest Buddhist tropes to get to the heart of, like, you know, you are a suffering person and mm-hmm. you have no answer for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what are you going to do? And um, and so what I did was uh, I took the bait and I very quickly found myself in what I would call a high demand group or a cult. So what does that, what does the taking the bait look like? You go up to him and talk to him afterward and say, God, no one's ever explained this better than you have. I'd like to go hear you talk again. Or how does it work? Taking the bait means uh, being vulnerable enough to feel like this person has perfected his life in a way that you have to mimic or that if you could possibly get a piece of, Mm -hmm. that you you would be okay. Mm -hmm. I was estranged from my family. I was living in in very strained social circumstances, and I just felt lost. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he you know, looked at me with guru eyes Mm -hmm. and filled me with a kind of uh, sense of possibility Mm -hmm. uh, that depended upon me making some sort of commitment. It it was like an electrifying couple of days Mm -hmm. in which I felt a kind of human contact and a sense of community, which now I know was manipulative because it wasn't really a a community. It was a hierarchy, a very strict hierarchy. You... 
you found a group that had the trappings of Buddhism grafted onto the idea that you can use positive thinking to become rich and successful, of course. And just to be fair to young Matthew, you know, lots of us in our 20s are looking for wealth and seeking some kind of education mm-hmm. and, and a kind of love affair. I mean, having an older, seemingly stronger figure cool off your nervous system with his own confidence or expressed well-being seems like the way many of us proceed. I mean, you know, it looks to me like there were not certain eccentricities or even I'd argue special vulnerabilities about you and other people who join these high demand groups. Yeah, I don't I don't think there was anything I don't think there was anything unique or particularly amiss. And the way I'm answering this question actually kind of distracts from the fact that, you know, yes, we're all in those situations in our twenties and beyond. And many of us don't run into cults that are actively mm-hmm. recruiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you use the word join, which is mm. which is interesting because there's you can't really join uh, something that lies to you, right? You, mm. you, it's, mm-hmm. it's non-consensual that way. Mm. One of the most uh, powerful things that a uh, cult researcher ever said to me when I was unraveling all of this stuff was uh, the late Kathleen Mann said over the phone, uh, you know, no one joins a cult. They delay leaving organizations that misrepresented themselves. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, Michael Roach is just a was a pathological liar about his background, about mm. his uh, his knowledge, about his his uh, you know, personal educational history. There was a solid foundation of Tibetan philosophy that mm-hmm. he understood. And then he made up a whole sort of prosperity gospel to go on top of that mm. uh, that was very self-serving. A- joining is not really a thing when you're when you're being deceived. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really about being uh, recruited. So we have you with Michael Roach. Tell me the moment that you decided, I can't do this. It was in Singapore, uh, and I had followed him around the world on a teaching tour. And I was sitting, listening to him speak to a Singaporean audience uh, that I believe uh, where m- most of the speakers were were Mandarin Chinese speakers. And there was a translator. And despite having a translator, Michael Roach put on a Fu Manchu accent. Hmm. He, he spoke as though he was making fun of Chinese people, hmm. but I think he thought he was being polite by speaking English in the way that he would imagine they would speak English. And, you know, it wasn't a sign of his deceptiveness. It was a sign of his uh, complete disconnect from social reality that he was able to not read the room to such a degree hmm. that it just became very clear to me that, oh, you are completely about you. You are completely hmm. about yourself and you're surrounded by people who have been sort of engineered by this machine to reflect your needs, to validate your 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 points of view uh, in this grand feedback loop that is completely impermeable to any kind of uh, criticism or, or oversight. And, and so that was, a, that was a key moment. I just want to interject here that you left and immediately found yourself in a similar situation. You did something I do in dating where you get out of one bad relationship just to get back into another. And again, I'm not judging you because this is also a very Virginia Heffernan decision to make. It's also called uh, cult hopping, and it's very well known in the cult research community because yeah. uh, if you have spent three years of your life fraying or frying your social connections everywhere else, mm-hmm. if you have limited your employment 
you know, uh, abilities or avenues. Uh, if you are continuing to alienate your family and friends, if nobody knows who you are, hmm. uh, then you might recognize the next cultic structure that come across comes across your radar as something that's familiar that you know how to work, yeah. uh, and that will also promise you some kind of respite. It might mm. this might be the good place that actually fulfills mm. what the first place failed at, right? Yeah. yeah. And I phoned my my friend and mentor in Vermont, and I said, what should I do? Hmm, right, sure. <laughs> and and the guy, bless his heart, he said, well, you know, the place that really transformed my life was Endeavor Academy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but... But yeah, I was I was uh, sort of bounced into the next situation without really catching my breath or, or getting my feet on the ground. And now tell me about Endeavor Academy, which was the second group you joined. Yeah, more extreme. Uh, I, I wound up at Endeavor Academy and um, the leader there was an ex- uh, Marine, U.S. Marine, whose story was that he had become an acute alcoholic after not being able to process what he saw when he was amongst the first troops on the ground at Nagasaki after the mm. bomb dropped. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he locates uh, the devastation of the Second World War as the sort of starting point of his um you know, spiritual awakening, Hmm. the recognition that the world doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. If this weapon can be used, if this can cause this much destruction, how can anything be real? How can human beings actually be worth um, uh, communicating with or trying to reason with? It's actually, there's something quite compelling about this Argument. Absolutely. There's something he's he's he was right. I was gonna say he's not wrong with that question. It's a good question. He's not wrong and he's coming out of a um uh, a traumatic experience. Uh and he used that traumatic experience as kind of proof positive for the necessity of spiritual bypassing. Hmm. And the tool that he used for that was uh this book called A Course in Miracles. And uh A Course in Miracles uh, is is basically the urtext of New Age mm-hmm. spirituality. There yeah. are thousands of Course in Miracles reading groups. Uh, it is a best-selling book. Uh, people are quoting it all the time without necessarily knowing it. Yeah, A Course in Miracles, the book, has been extremely popular since it was published in 1976. And it's kind of a trippy guide, right, for manifesting self-awareness and harnessing love and... Anyway, how did you leave Charles Anderson and the Course in Miracles jam? The moment with Charles Anderson was that um, every day um, there would be a an ecstatic prayer session where he would kind of improvise a sermon, and then after that uh, they would put on trance music and everybody would dance around. But he would go up into the upper room of this old hotel where the academy was was placed, and uh, he would take uh, visitors. And so I kind of went up through this empty hallway as if it was in a dream. And I I remember opening the door and uh, he said, "Uh, come in. And and I peeked around the the, the door and it was a hotel room. So the bathroom was right to the right side of the door. Hmm. And he was in the bathroom looking at himself like he had just woken up from 
the worst hangover of his life. He looked absolutely clinically depressed. Uh, mm. He was looking at himself like, what are you doing? What is mm. going on here? And then I could see, as he became aware of me in his peripheral vision, I could see him turn and literally transform his face into guru googly eyes and just pick up where he left off uh, and and you know begin to talk talk to me in his in his spiritual sort of ecstasy babble uh, while mm. you know I was waiting to to get my question in but I was like I could see that what however this guy was made up he was trapped he was utterly absolutely imprisoned by this performed role of charismatic mm. authority and he didn't know how to get out mm -hmm. uh, and he didn't know how to relate to me as a human being outside of that mm. I i'm glad i'm glad that you brought him up because as i'm 51 years old uh i was recruited into this first group at on the cusp of going into grad school uh mm. I, I would have gone into humanities i had written two novels and there was nothing that i could see in my culture or my economy that I could do. Hmm. Uh, so all of the things that I had grown up with from my boomer parents who were, hmm. you know, liberal, uh, progressive, strong union, they voted NDP in, the can in Canada all the time. Uh, all of that sort of material background was just kind of dissipated. It, it had floated away. There was hmm. nothing for me to hold on to anymore. And so I wandered the world uh, because I got a, you know, an arts grant and I had a credit card with some space on it. And I, I just want to just bring, bring home the fact that these organizations thrive in the meaninglessness of late capitalism, mm. right? Like they, they are ready to scoop up, uh, people who have been, uh, immiserated by, lack of employment opportunity uh, by the emerging gig work economy and now by the internet, right? Mm -hmm. It's like we we have more legitimate institutions that have structure to them, that have rules, mm. uh, that confer some kind of, you know, social benediction. And then we have cultic organizations that mimic those same functions, but they do it by collecting people who have fallen out of the rest of of the social project. Mm. There's a lot yeah. of people who just ended up in in organizations like this because the world is empty uh, mm -hmm. and because there was nothing for people to do mm -hmm. uh, and because there was no sense of class solidarity or like, you know, working on a project together. It's mm -hmm. not like I said, I need to, you know, learn about my chakras so that I can vacate my body in mm -hmm. a ray of light. It was It was more like, Nothing makes sense mm -hmm. uh, in this extended teenage period mm -hmm. that uh, just never came to an end. It was like a, there's some sort of failure to launch, mm. I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, the, the story from there is that as these cultic organizations are definitely not able to fill me up or answer my questions, and in fact, I realize uh, somewhat like a worker that I'm being exploited, mm -hmm. uh, hmm. I, I leave... Uh, and then what is there for me to do? Yeah. Right? Now it's six years with frayed social bonds. Now it's right. six years out from the people that I used to know when I was an undergrad. Now it's six years out from uh, having any reasonable contact with my family. I'm I'm twice as alienated, twice as, as floaty. Mm -hmm. It's 2003. And what job is on the horizon for the person who, you know, 
it has to get their U of T transcripts together to go back to, you know, university and doesn't know if they want to do that. I actually mm-hmm. tried for a while. Uh, but like, this was also the year in which uh, yoga teacher training programs exploded. Hmm. And you could become a gig worker by professionalizing yourself into the yoga world. And I was hmm. like, oh, I knew this. I, I know all of these ideas from from Michael Roach and from A Course in Miracles, and I don't mm-hmm. really like a lot of them, but when you combine it with stretching, they're not so bad. Uh, <laughs> and so and so I became I became a yoga teacher. Uh, and I thought for a while that it was kind of like a uh, a benign and and separate demographic apart from all of these other influences. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways it is in the sense that it's more uh, capitalized, mm-hmm. uh, it's more corporatized, and so it's more secular. But in 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 other ways, all of those same cultic influences are there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then then to build a yoga studio that stays in business or you know keep your clients, you you start to need all that gig worker entrepreneurism, self marketing influence, right. and so the thing that you feel that you've rejected market capitalism, late-stage capitalism, are suddenly become front and center in your life and the proof of your worth. But there's a sleight of hand. There's a sleight of hand because I own two studios. And and, and how Uh it happens is that, you know, the modern yoga studio uh, lands itself right in the heart of uh, the urban gentrification project of the 90s and 2000s. And that Mm. means that uh, you know, the beautiful yoga studio is in, you know, the old warehouse that used to be a textile factory, but it has hardwood floors and big, beautiful windows. And mm. so it's really nice to do stretches there. Uh, but it's there because all of those jobs got outsourced. It's like there are these empty spaces mm. now in urban centers that become yoga studios, art galleries and foodie places. But because the pressures of gentrification continue, People who run yoga studios and who are now becoming the priests of this neoliberal uh, religion, they always have to increase their margins. And they do that by offering, you know, bigger and more pricey trainings and more complicated trainings. So you think as a yoga teacher, studio owner, and YTT program director that you're not really participating in market capitalism. Mm, what you're doing right. is you're you're developing a curriculum of self-awareness, right? Mm. Uh, but actually, the necessity to do all of those, to add all of those courses, you know, to do a 200-hour training course and then to get people to do a 300-hour and then a 500-hour and whatever, mm-hmm. uh, most of the time, that is the story also of you looking at the the rent turnover after your five-year lease and knowing that it's going up 30% and -hmm. you have to increase your earnings. Uh, And that's why yoga studios last for five, mostly 10 years, right? Some Hmm. of them make it past the first lease. Uh, Most of them don't make it past the second lease because it's driven by gentrification. It's not driven by, you know, the business success or how many people want yoga. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's driven by the, the laws of the service industry. Coming up after the break, can we draw a straight line from yoga practice to anti-vax? You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, 
the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today, the author Matthew Remsky is taking me through his path, beginning in the wellness and spirituality community, from cults to cobra pose. So um, I want to get to sort of how big a problem the con- the conspirituality element is. So how does, my, let's say Michael Roach, coming out of Tibetan Buddhism, says the kind of first principles of Buddhism that Siddhartha, whatever, saw uh, aging and death and injury and sickness and instantly came to a way of not denying it, but of kind of sitting with it, right? Not a bad idea. But how does that freaking tilt into QAnon? Like, that's the thing. It's just crazy, and yet it happened in a pretty compressed period. So just to, re- just to review, uh, and it's great that we're able to cover so many zones of this territory, what we have with yoga and New Age spirituality as a neoliberal religion is something that is depoliticized, Mm-hmm. Something that is uh, where people are encouraged to focus on their personal development and their heroic personal journeys, where, you know, the mantra within the yoga class is this is your personal practice and mm. this is how you can do self-care. Uh, and there's never any word whatsoever of the commons or of public health mm. or of, uh, and in fact, with regard to health, because as the yoga and wellness world have larger and larger pretensions to to professionalization. There's more and more at stake in wanting to make health claims. This is how you're mm. going to take take care of yourself. Uh, this is how yoga is going to relieve stress. This is how meditation is going to lower your b- blood pressure. And so there's a growing sort of uh, intersection between yoga, wellness, complementary and alternative medicine, and this kind of neoliberal, you're on your own, you've got to take care of yourself mm. uh, because there's no social safety net anyway. And why should there be? Because we're at the end of history. Like mm-hmm. all of those things mm. come together. Hmm. Uh, and and as and as they come together, we have a, a population that is mildly uh, antipathetic towards um, biomedicine, towards evidence-based medicine. They hundreds of thousands of them have gone through training programs that present themselves as being kind of university-level learning experiences, but really there's this is kind of like epistemological train wreck of, oh, <laughs> we're going to study this little this this ancient yoga book, and then we're going to study a little bit of anatomy, uh, and that's all packed into a 200-hour program that gives the person a certificate and allows them to professionalize. So, mm. so there's a, there's a, there's a real epistemological issue with all of the training programs where nobody's like doing any real evidence-based research. Nobody's got coherent curriculum. Mm. There's no real standards educationally for how people professionalize into the industry. And there's hundreds of thousands of people who go through this. I think the key word here is, is that the leadership of the yoga and wellness spaces is never about credentials or training mm. because there are no really established norms. 
so what rises to the top is charisma. Hmm. Uh, what hmm. what is the, mo- the the primary sort of currency of an unregulated uh, demographic and and how it professionalizes is charisma. And that's mm. simply the mystical ability to uh, generate a feedback loop by which the people who are listening to you think that you're making sense, regardless mm. of what you're saying. I would say that the kind of presentational style that we're talking about is involves, you know, uh, just a list of unsighted claims that mm-hmm. are delivered with you know, absolute personal confidence and authority mm-hmm. uh, and um, skip from subject to subject hmm. and give the person a sense that there's no part of their life that this discipline couldn't speak to, right? Mm. Or mm. couldn't provide information about. There's a there's a rule of charismatic presentation and authority that really sets the stage for whether or not this is a culture that thinks critically, about mm. science, about vaccines, about politics, uh, or whether mm. it wants to, whether it mm. wants to think clearly about any of those things, or whether it relegates, and it does this most often with the political world, whether it relegates all of those worldly concerns to the you know junk pile of, oh, that's polarizing, that's duality, uh, that's mm. not what we're focused on. We are focused on you know our internal uh, soul development, and it's beyond all of those things that that uh, the regular world wants to worry about. When we're talking about this yoga industry globally, uh, we're talking about an economy that's like $80 billion per year. Uh, and that's pre-pandemic, so we're going to see how that shakes out. And and I think we have to ask the question, like, what is the product of this industry? Mm. It's not knowledge, it's not technology, it's not food, uh, it's not infrastructure. Um, the yoga and wellness industries, they produce, their product is the aspirational self. Uh, yeah. The self that you want to become, mm. the, or the self that you discover yourself as already being, and then the question is, how do you create that self? Like you can't really; uh, mm-hmm. it's not really there. By definition, it's it's over the horizon. You're always going to chase it with the next training and so mm-hmm. on. You're always going to try to purify it even more with the next, you know, smoothie. Uh, you're going to eat raw honey. You're going to just keep doing the next thing. Yeah. Uh, and so you're talking about highly creative uh, people yearning for a good life mm. and to make sense of the world who are actually really bored because they're stuck in a consumerist loop because mm. none of this stuff actually makes the world change. Mm. And the virtuous consumption that everybody is doing is really boring, uh, if not nauseating. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and so there's a lot of of work on, on manifesting a self that can never really be there. Mm. And so this is why I want to say that boredom is a, is a prior principle to the eruption of conspirituality in wellness spaces because along comes a pandemic Mm-hmm. which hits all of the keynotes that this space fetishizes. Hmm. So uh, it brings up the subject of your immune system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's going to scare you about the nature of your autonomy and your agency. Uh, and most importantly, it's going to relegate your sacred self-care practices mm. to a kind of hobby room, right? Because mm. the only real answer to a pandemic is evidence-based uh, and homogenized interventions that are good for everybody. Mm. And this is why the vaccine, I think, is so insulting, so distasteful to the yoga and wellness set. It's not just that 
The cure or the treatment or the vaccine for coronavirus is egalitarian, is the same across all physiologies, all bodies, all psychologies, all spiritualities. It's that the disease is the same, that we're all equally vulnerable to this lung-eating disease. It's so true. You you totally nailed it. Uh, and so everything that you've done in order to treat the uniqueness of your condition, whether you need a paleo or a gluten-free diet, uh, whether you should tune your chakras or microdose on on mushrooms or whatever, like all of that goes out the window Mm. or even more shamefully, it gets exposed as the conspicuous consumption that it really is. Mm. So in a Mm. better world, I would say that yoga people and wellness people and sellers of this stuff would say, huh, okay, well, we're going to let the experts take over here, people who know something about epidemiology, virology. But the reality is that yoga and wellness people for decades have, especially the ones who want to make it big, Mm -hmm. uh, have marketed themselves as healthcare providers and they don't want to give up that territory. And so the pandemic becomes their Waterloo because everyone now Mm. is concerned about the very thing that they fetishize, which is immunity. Mm -hmm. So the vaccine is like the state entering your body with something homogenous, Mm -hmm. right, That, that doesn't speak to your bespoke condition. And then there are these influencers who are suddenly telling us about forsythia, turmeric, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and, you know, whatever else is supposed to be the solution to COVID. So how does that lead to right-wing politics, just to close the loop? Well, I would say that the bias historically within yoga and wellness culture, as, as I've laid out a little bit, uh, begins from a depoliticized space that under pressure squeezes towards a kind of hyper-individuality and expresses itself in medical libertarianism. We haven't seen a single mm. conspirituality person drift towards the left because what would mm. they actually be drifting towards? Uh, they would be drifting towards the notion that there are shared solutions that involve, you know, acknowledging social construction, uh, that involve mm. uh, acknowledging the social determinants of disease, that involve acknowledging that uh, actually COVID is worse for people of color than for anybody else. And there are historical reasons for that. Mm. And so uh, this is why uh, conspirituality people can skip from topic to topic, but they're going all the way down a kind of right-wing path uh, from, you know, they're dog-whistling the anti-Semitic mythologies about the cabal and sex trafficking in the summer, and then they're talking about how the evil state is trying to inflict CRT on their children Mm. in the winter. And there's a continuity in that argument I think pulling out the pins of this stuff can look very technical, but I hope that you can agree that the only kind of recommendations that should come out of this are something like eat what you want, do do any kind of exercise you want, try to behave more humanely in your public life, and get the freaking vaccine. Yeah, I would endorse all of those statements. And then I would say also... um, develop a radar for uh, emotional manipulation in parasocial environments, understand what it means to hear 
an extraordinary claim made about something in medicine or spirituality or something about the nature of reality. You know, ask yourself, what would it cost me to just pause the video at that point and say, why are you saying that? And what's your, <laughs> what's your, um, you know, because, because you might hear something that sounds very impressive and inspiring and you may not want to stop the YouTube video because it's giving you a pleasurable mm. sensation. And so, being able to uh, understand that undue influence is actually pleasurable in many mm. cases mm-hmm. uh, is really is really helpful. Uh, and then also, it's like, you know, what is really feeding your material life? Because mm. it's probably not going to be the yoga influencer who's trying to get you to buy into the retreat in Cabo, right? It's it's not going to be these abstract things. It's probably going to be what's happening at your local st- school council, what's happening when you supervise recess, uh, <laughs> what happens or when you help, uh, what happens when you know your local businesses are struggling because of COVID lockdowns. These very on the ground, very mundane concerns, I think, are exactly mm-hmm. what gets displaced by yoga and wellness culture that veers into that kind of neoliberal dissociation. Thank you so much for being here, Matthew. Yeah, thank you. That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode. It's an amazing episode on James Joyce's Ulysses. By following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review our show in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people to learn about us. For more information and to keep tabs on the show, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and the show at This Critical Pod. If you have a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Corinne Wallace is the producer with help this week from Harry Huggins. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.